This podcast is sponsored by the Music Player Network at musicplayer.com, the premier musician resource for keyboard players and beyond. Since the year 2000, the Music Player Network has been the go-to source for news and views on music technology, playing tips, and gigging help. The Keyboard Corner is one of the longest-running keyboard forums in Internet history, with guitar, bass, drum, and numerous recording and music tech forums also on offer. Frequented by weekend warriors, manufacturers' representatives, and professionals alike, MPN provides an invaluable resource for any musician, and it's 100% free to sign up and use. Go to www.musicplayer.com to see for yourself. Hello and welcome to episode 24 of the Keyboard Chronicles, a podcast for keyboard players of the gigging variety. I'm your host David Holloway and it's great as always to be here with you and I also have the brilliant Paul Bindig with me. How are you Paul? Thank you David. Um, I'm well, I'm excited, uh, looking forward to another podcast. Yeah, and we, we've we're a bit, both a bit excited as always about this interview. Um, this, this time we're back in the UK again. Uh, and we're interviewing Mr. Clive Nolan. Now, Clive's been a prominent and influential fixture in Britain's neo-progressive rock scene since the mid-'80s when he first secured the role as Pendragon's keyboard player. Um, he's remained with them ever since, whilst also starting and playing in his own successful progressive band Shadowland and Arena. Um, his masterful and prolific output has seen him voted Classic Rock Society's Keyboard Player of the Year no less than 10 times. Jeez, I'd be happy with half a time. Um, a talented... <laughs> A talented songwriter and lyricist. Uh, in more recent times, Clive has founded a, a theatre company, which he'll talk about in the interview, which specialises in rock opera and musical theatre. Um, he's also part owner of Thin Ice Studios and a novelist, which we'll link to in the show notes as well. There's no doubt that Clive is one creative keyboard player, and we think you'll enjoy this interview with him. Clive, can't thank you enough for joining us today. Well, it's a pleasure to uh, experience this, actually, and it's nice to talk to somebody. It's not like I'm kind of getting much of a social <laughs> life at the moment anyway. No, that's true. We, we have been asking our guests uh, the last few months about what they're doing to keep busy. So what are you doing to keep busy? Um, well, a good question. I mean, I was actually halfway through a Pendragon tour when this, uh, the virus became, well, like a real reality for, from our point of view. We were staying one step ahead of it for a while. Um, and then uh, venues sort of ahead of our tour were starting to have to close down. And then it came, it actually ended up being a chase for the borders because we were at the, we were in Poland. And then they were going to close their borders. And then Germany and Belgium, we had to kind of get back to England. So we just about made it. Uh, <clears throat> so <clears throat> this year, most of my year was supposed to be touring. But, of course, that's yeah. all gone out the window. So uh, that, that all had to go. So, uh, yeah, I've been concentrating a little more on the albums, that, the various albums that I'm involved with, and using the time to kind of uh, work on those. And uh, even got to the point of, of writing a book. And uh, uh, and I'm going to try and do some more of that as well. Basically, as a musician, I'm now trying to find other ways of earning money in the sort of uh, in, yeah. in the industry that I'm part of. So yeah, no, great, and that's probably a perfect segue to. Do you want to just give us a little bit of a potted history of your um, prolific and, and impressive career to date? So I mean, perhaps we usually go back to sort of the childhood thing, what got you into music, and then you know, all the great um, a potted history up until now that we'll sort of discuss a little further? Uh, well, my parents were music teachers, <clears throat> so there was a sort of inevitability that I would at least be uh, sort of given the, the musical experience, as it were. Um, and um, I think my parents were more sort of classically orientated, and, and I went down that route initially, and I sort of started learning the piano and my main instrument was the violin, 
and the cello. <clears throat> and uh, when I went to university and I sort of did music degrees and such like, so I kind of went down a very much more kind of disciplined, classical sort of route. But uh, somewhere along the line, I, I, I was also kind of playing in a, uh, a rock band. Uh, I sort of thought, oh, this would be an interesting experience. So we sort of started doing that. Um, and then somewhere along the line, because at school I had known a, a guy called Nick Barrett and he went on to do Pendragon, we sort of met up again and I ended up playing in Pendragon. And that was the beginning of the sort of, um, well, I don't know, the progressive rock career, I suppose. Um, and off the back of that, uh, I did some of my own albums with things like Strangers on a Train. I then ended up singing in, in my own band called Shadowland. Uh, we did three albums. Uh, I sort of wrote and produced various sort of albums for other people. Um, <clears throat> and then a little bit later along the way, um, I met Mick Pointer from Marillion and we formed Arena, uh, which is... Um, uh, well, another sort of progressive rock band, sort of leaning slightly towards the, the, the slightly heavier rock area, I suppose. Um, and and then sort of in more recent years, uh, things that have been, because you sort of build up a certain amount of credibility over the years, or at least I, th I hope so, that enabled me to kind of make slightly more choices of my own uh, over perhaps the last 10 years. So I actually kind of moved into the area of musicals, um, which is something that has always been something that I've I've loved, and uh, I've written three of those uh, so far. Uh, one of which has been signed up to become a movie. Whether it happens or not, we'll have to see. Especially now, but we'll, yeah. we'll see how. And um, pretty much now, running together, Pendragon Arena touring, bringing out albums, and then all the sort of solo projects and such like that I do on top and the side of that. And and here I am. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. No, look great summary, and we're sort of going to cover cover each of those aspects. Um, so no, that's brilliant. So so Clive, what is it about progressive rock that first attracted you? Absolutely nothing. Um, <laughs> Uh, I, I didn't come into progressive. I didn't sort of make a, a conscious, hey, I don't know, this is what I want to do. I, I came at it completely from ignorance. What happened was when I was at school, <clears throat> um, I, I changed schools for the sixth form. So for the last few years of my school education, I changed schools to King's School in Gloucester, which incidentally is where they filmed quite a lot of the Harry Potter school scenes. I just thought I'd throw that in. Um, not when I was there. Though. Um, it's a cathedral school, so it's, it's got a lot of history. Um, and I made new friends there and they were very keen to sort of introduce me to the world of rock music and pop music because I had absolutely, I, up until that point, I'd really been very much classical music and, and no interest outside of that. And I decided when I changed schools, it was time for me to try and have an interest to kind of, you know, get what was going on. So I was getting these, you know, as you would do in those days, collection tapes, you know, yeah. uh, compilation tapes. Mm -hmm. And... And then one day I, I borrowed 20 pounds and I went down to the shops in, in Gloucester and I thought, I'm going to buy an album. Uh, seriously, I had no idea. This was the time when punk was just starting to sort of appear. So I could have bought anything at all. And I literally went through the albums, uh, vinyl in those days, of course, and, and I picked out one. I just love the cover. I love the feel of it. I knew nothing about the band, nothing about the music. It turned out this this album was Genesis Seconds Out. Wow. Uh, ah, right. So, and I took it home. I played it. And I, initially, I sort of thought, what the bloody hell's going on here? And then basically, I sort of, I, there was a few things that I latched into my mind. I thought, I really like that. And then, you know, within a few days, I, I couldn't stop playing it. And then I, the, and the next logical thing for me was because it, it because the thing about progressive folk is it does have a lot of classical elements. Mm -hmm. So for me, it wasn't such a massive jump. Um, and then, and then the next thing I said, you know, hey, let's form a band and do this kind of stuff. And I remember the very first sort of band piece of music that we did. I literally sat down and wrote on manuscript paper, and then turned up to the other musicians, hey, there you go. And they just looked at this manuscript. None of them could read music, so it was a waste of time. Um, but, uh, <laughs> that, so, 
Yeah, exactly. I know. Uh, but I fell into it. I, I, I didn't know at that time it was called progressive rock even. I just loved Genesis when I heard that thing. I love that kind of music, which was a little bit more three dimensional than just say a pop song that required a couple of verses and a chorus. And um, and I sort of just, yeah, fell into it, basically. And someone yeah. told me, hey, do you realise you're playing progressive rock? I said, really? Okay. Well, and I suppose progressive rock is one of those terms that sort of, you know, like all musical genre terms, it's been applied a bit retro retrospectively to a lot of genres too. I mean, you're just making music that you, that you love and that sounds good, I suppose. Yeah, I don't. Yes, I mean I, that that's really true. From certainly uh, the, the stuff that I've done, as a rule, uh, the, we never really sit down. You know, with the bands like Pendragon or in, we don't sit down and say, well, we need to have. At least, uh, you know, one Mellotron section, one yeah, track's yeah. 20 minutes long. You've got to play a double neck. Now, we, you know, we just write songs. And it is very much about songwriting. It's not about scales and arpeggios and exercises and how long you can make a piece of music. So, you know, the fact that people call what we do progressive rock is entirely up to them. But we don't sort of sit there trying to write it. Yeah, totally understood. Talking about... Uh arena you mentioned before that uh, you, you know you form arena with uh, mick pointer who was marillion's former drummer and mm. and you guys are still doing that to this day i'm really interested clive in how that collaboration came about and what's been the secret to it it's enduring success um i don't really know i mean i certainly don't know what i i, I think that when when i met mick uh, he'd been out of the music business for about 10 years. Mm -hmm. uh, and, I, and, and so, uh, but I, my, my theory with this sort of thing, it's, it's in your blood. So although although he hadn't done it for a while, and obviously because he'd, I think he'd felt very betrayed by the whole Meridian experience, sure. uh, you know, he wasn't going to be in a hurry to come back to it. And, and initially when we first met, he said, look, look we'll, we'll just make an album. And that's it. But, uh, you know, it, was, it only took a few weeks of writing for the album before we were talking about it as a band. Um, and I could, you know, he, he was just, it was, you know, he, he, it was obviously in his blood and we were going to come back together, which we did uh, as, a, as a band. And um, I think that Arena at the time when we first appeared was probably for some people, maybe, I'm not sure, but for some people who perhaps got a little bit disenchanted with Marillion mm. might have thought that we were perhaps the alternative to that. There might have been an element of that uh, in it. We had a kind of uh, perhaps a more direct approach uh, in the songwriting, uh, yep. slightly sort of heavier edge, which I think uh, a lot of people liked. It. So it, it, it attracted not just sort of progressive rock fans, but people perhaps from sort of other rock, rock areas as well. Mm -hmm. um, Beyond that, I just like to, th I hope it's because we write good music and, and people like what we do. I mean, I think mm. there's always been a certain chemistry on stage with the band. <clears throat> it's a very uh, strange um, cocktail, really. I think the, the very energy that makes us quite a good live band is also what makes the band quite combustible, which is why we've had so many lineup changes over the years. <laughs> <laughs> that's good. Yeah, that's gold. And, um, over that time, Clive, with both Arena and Pendragon, and we'll talk more about Pendragon in a sec, um, your own keyboard playing, as you said, you had that more classical upbringing. How's your keyboard playing evolved over your career? So obviously, besides developing lots more chops and, and all that sort of stuff, just how, how's it evolved for you as far as your enjoyment and, and what you actually play? Well, the funny thing is, I, I think of myself as a composer who plays some keyboards rather than a keyboard player who does other things. It's always been a means to an end for me. So that when we first formed at school, when I said, hey, let's form a band, there wasn't another instrument that particularly interested me. So I was the obvious candidate to play keyboards because I'd got up to a certain grade on piano and, you know, it, it was a sort of logical progression. Plus the fact that I, I used to, I had a friend uh, called Matt Clifford, uh, who went on to be, uh, who has gone on to be a very successful keyboard player and other uh, things. And I remember we used to go to the, the, the practice rooms 
during some of the breaks and he 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 had a great sort of um memory for all this sort of music and he was the guy who introduced me to rick waitman and he started playing sort of uh you know that all that sort of stuff and we were just sort of learning to learning to these little riffs and bits and pieces that uh came out of the rick waitman stuff and and he lent me he lent me uh what was it uh uh, yes, I know. It was King Arthur, oh, yeah. and I've still got yeah. it. He has, I never gave it back to him. That's uh, I feel a bit guilty now. But somewhere up uh, with my vinyl, I've, I've still got King Arthur, which is his copy. But anyway, <laughs> I, so I discovered Rick Wakeman at that point, and, and that was kind of exciting, you know, because at that stage uh, that we were just getting to the point where there were there were keyboards as you know they were being developed synthesizers and things were sort of all coming out and and of course the thing about Wakeman in those days although actually to, to a great extent still but he 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 was just surrounded by this mountain of things because yes. each keyboard could only really do one thing so you know you'd, you'd have the Moog and he'd have the Metron and he'd have the Hammond organ and you know whatever and and that sort of made the whole thing look very dynamic and very exciting and certainly in my earlier career I had a lot of keyboards because the more primitive the keyboards, the fewer things they could do, and the more keyboards you sort of needed. Um, and uh, you know, we but it but it, it also got to a point uh, by the time we got to the visitor album, which was the third arena album, and we went out and did the tour. I had like nine keyboards, I had a set of bass pedals, and I had two 60 new racks of samplers and sort of various things, and and these and and, and these MIDI patch bays, and oh, it was a nightmare. I had two. Two technicians used to set it all up, <clears throat> and it used to occur to me, you know, walk on stage and start playing, and, and I'd be completely beholden to maybe just one lead. If one lead <laughs> was to go a bit dodgy, you would have no idea what was, you know, what was going wrong. And that, so I sort of reached that point, and yes, it looked fantastic, I think, um, but it was getting, it was sort of too much in a way. And I'm like, at that point, I remember on that tour thinking, right, from now on, I'm going to see if I can sort of gradually diminish the size. And initially, I remember going down to five keyboards and thinking, how am I going to manage with five keyboards? How am I going to do this? But, you know, and then gradually getting rid of all the rack units because the keyboards could do more. Um, and, you know, and then eventually you could put samples into the keyboards and sound effects and all that sort of stuff. And then I got down to three, which was two in front of me and the piano on my left, sort of facing the audience. Um, and then eventually I managed to get down to two keyboards, which, I, which is for me the, the ideal setup. I love that. I wouldn't go less. I wouldn't go more if I can help it. And um, it works very well. And so that, that's it now. And I've got this, this guy designed this, this uh, 360 spinning keyboard oh, yeah. stand which works on ball bearings. And I was the first person to test that out, I think. So I might have been the first person to actually have had a fully rotating keyboard stand. I know there've been others that go part way, but this was fully rotating at the time. So that's a lot of fun to play as well. So, you know, once you've sort of established the parts that you're supposed to play, there's the added excitement of not knowing whether the keyboard stand's gonna stand still long enough for you to play it. <laughs> <laughs> that's good. And we do we do tend to talk gear here and there in some episodes, so this is probably a perfect segue, Clive, to maybe go back to the five five keyboard rig, not to stretch you too far, and and what do you recall that you were playing around then, and then maybe your current rig, what you currently use. Okay, well the, the five keyboard rig, uh, we, uh, I'll, basically from many many years ago, I started. I was a Korg guy. Yeah. I am a Korg guy um, because. Um, when you go out, well, when I go out live, I much that it would be lovely to be surrounded by all the specialised keyboards. I want keyboards that are kind of jack of all trades mm. because I need a bit of a string sound, a bit of a brass, this, that and the other. And they may not be the ones exactly that we've used on the album, but they'll be, you know, we can approximate mm. and get pretty close. And, and of course, more recent times, it's a little easier. Um, so in those days, I, I had moved on to the O1Ws, uh, a core keyboards, um, great thing, of course, at that stage was, hey, you can put it on a disc and save the settings. You know, that was the kind of big move in those days, a floppy disc. Yeah. Um, so basically, I had two O1Ws certainly in front of me. I had a, a, a key, a, like a weighted keyboard, um, 
one, two, three, four. Yeah, I had a weighted keyboard facing the audience, which was my sort of mostly what I would use for the piano. And that was a Roland, what's it called, an A90? Yeah, A90, yeah. Yep. Uh, weighted keys, which uh, for the most part was all about, like I say, playing playing piano parts. Um, and I've got to be honest, I can't remember what the That's other okay. two keyboards were. They would have varied. Uh, they, they, you know, they would have been a, probably some kind of a Yamaha. For a while, I had a Moog and I used that live. Um, and that was that was great. But as as we've been saying that, you know, well, as I've been saying, it does one thing, does yeah, it really well, right. but it just does one thing. So there came a point where that just wasn't enough. So um, uh, so I kind of went down to the three keyboards and that was two. I always remember it was two O one W's and the A90. But um, the, half the thinking of this was sometimes we would travel to like, I don't know, America or South America. And I, I just wanted to try and make sure that it was as controllable as possible when I got out there. So it wasn't like taking kind of computer programs and things. I, I turn up in America and say, well, I want two, two O one W's and A90 and here are the floppy disks. So if you give me the wrong keyboard, I'm going to tell you where you can stick these discs. <laughs> basically, uh, you know, it, they had to be the right keyboards. So basically, I programmed everything down, 201Ws and the A90. And then uh, and then things moved on, and I sort of moved through the kind of the Trinity. And the uh, and then I moved on to Extremes, a core oh, yeah. Extreme. And I had to Triton, was a Triton Extreme, aren't they? Yeah, that's right. Um, and I ended up with two of those. In fact, no, I tell a lie, I ended up with effectively three because I had the two in front of me and I had uh, the then I had the, the the large 88 note one, which I've literally just just sold a few weeks ago. Um, and I love those keyboards. The great thing about them is that they're really well, for me, I found them very easy to program. You get you go to the multi-screen. Yeah, for me, it's all about having zones. On the keyboard. Yeah. So when I'm playing a keyboard, I might want something in the middle here, which is sort of the, like the main part. But there's there's probably going to be some samples to trigger at the bottom end, and maybe a little high flute part at the top end. So zoning's important, and having a, you know, so that the, the kind of multi thing is important, and and that's easy to program. And of course, the, the because I was buying Korgs each new generation, the sort of the way that they thought remained the same. So I didn't have like a massive learning curve. Mm -hmm. um, I always tended to find with Roland, I could, you know, I could sort of get into a Roland thing, and it was a mystery as to because they, their terminology was different. I remember that yeah. as well. It was, but anyway. So I, eventually, of course, I've now moved on to the um, where am I now? Two, yeah. uh, two keyboards um, and Kronos. Yeah. So I've got a Kronos eighty-eight, and the top one is a Kronos seventy-three oh, yeah. Note. And they are—they're fantastic because they've got memory. You can load in all your samples and things from the album. They've got shed loads of sound, so you can approximate pretty much everything you need. Uh, I love them. They are my absolute favourite keyboards that I've had in all the years I've been sort of touring and playing. Um, so yeah, that's where I am now. Yeah, uh, great, great summary. And two out of three members of this um, interview own Kronos, and one one would like to. Isn't that right, Paul? Yeah, exactly right. They're wonderful keyboards. Well, that means if I come to Australia, I know who to turn to if I That's need to right. borrow a Kronos. Anytime. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Anytime. Um, and you made a great point before too, Clive, about that you always saw your keyboard playing as a means to compose. So um, what is it about your keyboard playing skills you felt has helped you, you to write and score, whether it's the musicals you're involved with, which we'll talk about in a minute, or, or pretty much anything? Um. Well, I, I think actually it's more to do with my overall education that, that's, that's helped me. Because initially, when I, when I first started going into the sort of rock music thing, I was thinking, well, I've done all this sort of, you know, I've done the, the grade eight of this and uh, all the theory examinations and I've gone to university and I got my, you know, sort of bachelor of music and I stayed on it and a master of music. I see all this education, orchestration and uh, conducting and this, that and the other. And I'm going to do, I'm going to play in a rock band. And I thought initially I'm not going to need any of that stuff at all. And I sort of, you know, I suppose when I first started, I kind of didn't. Um, but as time went on, 
I have been able to take an awful lot of what I learned over those years and, and apply it and use it, particularly now with the musicals and a lot of other stuff that I do. There's a lot of orchestration involved, and that's one of my favourite sort of elements. As far as the actual keyboard playing is concerned, again, it's very much, it's just simply whatever my limited ability is to play keyboards allows me to kind of put parts into the various sessions that I'm writing or, or come up with ideas that can be translated into songs. It's just my my particular uh, medium through which I can do the writing. Um, but as with, I think, well, any composer worth his salt, I, I like to be able to imagine that I can uh, think beyond my ability to play, if you see what I mean. Yeah. If, if, if my ability to play limited what, what the orchestra was doing when I'm programming an orchestra, then I think that would be a, a downside. So I need... I need to be able to kind of imagine beyond my particular playing abilities anyway. Yeah, no, great answer. Clive, you mentioned uh, earlier when you were talking about your career history, joining Pendragon at a young age and, and still, and you were just saying that you were in the midst of a tour when uh, this unfortunate COVID-19 thing hit. I'm, I'm interested in if the current Clive Nolan was to meet the young Clive Nolan who first joined Pendragon, would there be any advice you'd give him with the benefit of hindsight? Um, I, I, it would probably go one of two ways. Either I'd have a hell of a lot of advice <laughs> or, 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 or I wouldn't bother. I, I'm pretty sure that if I went to the young client known and tried to give him advice, he'd just tell me to bugger off. Um, <laughs> because at the time, I think half, half of what gets you through this stuff is, is ignorance. Uh, in many ways, uh, I, I think uh, I'd be wiser to let him just get on with it and make all the mistakes that he'll make mm -hmm. because he won't listen to me anyway. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, the one thing I would say, although it wouldn't necessarily be of, of practical use, is the fact that he needs to believe in what he's doing because actually somewhere down the line it might pay off. And uh, I think there was a, the, the, but then again, that's all part of the adventure, isn't it? You choose mm -hmm. to do something and you, you have an aim and you have, I mean, I had, you know, well, I still do. I have a lot of ambitions and a lot of hopes and a lot, I, 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 I have the sort of fantasy of doing various things, but the reality can be just as exciting as well. And, and I, it's certainly that my musical career has not gone anywhere near how I thought it was going to go but I'm certainly not complaining about that either because it, it's done I've, you know I've done some very good things I mean I will always wish to sell more albums I will always wish to play to more people I will always wish to be richer and more famous but uh, I think <laughs> half of it's the journey isn't it as they say well yeah I think so and look something you touched on there with that answer was self-doubt something that you ever experienced along the way as a younger musician and if so how did you deal with that how did you push through that yeah, very much so in fact funnily enough on the last album uh i'm trying to remember what the name of the song is on the last arena album which is called double vision uh there was a song on there um and I can't quite remember what the title of the song was called, something to do with thieves, but I can't remember what it was exactly called. And it was actually about that sort of subject. There's this syndrome, I think it might be called cuckoo syndrome, actually, but I, I think it has other names as well, where you kind of don't feel that you deserve to be where you are. Um, and I, I, I have suffered from that a lot. Mm -hmm. I, I kind of sometimes think, oh, God, you know, if, if anyone really knew what I could do or what I was, they, 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 you know, they wouldn't be as impressed as they seem to be. Um, and I, I'm, I'm sure it's quite a common feeling. It doesn't feel like I deserve some of the accolades or some of the things that have happened. So the, mir the mirror lies, Clive. Uh, no, it's not the mirror. Oh, it's not. No, oh, that was a try. Is there something? It's, if you've got the title, so I think one, it's got thieves in the yeah, title. Par par yeah, paradise of thieves. Paradise of thieves. That's the one. Um, and that 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 kind of touches on that very thing, whether I really have the right to be who I am. Uh, it's like I, I don't feel that I am the person people think I am. But then. I also, you know, there are times when I might feel that way, but there are also times when I think, hang on a minute, I've worked very hard. I, I've done this. I've done this myself. I've produced this. 
you know, whatever. And, 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 and why should I not deserve it? But there, yes, I think, I think it's a, a natural thing. You, uh, I think a lot of artists, a lot of musicians, a lot of entertainers, they crave affirmation, don't they? I mean, that's almost why you do it. Absolutely. And, uh, for, for, you know, I only exist, Tinkerbell syndrome, actually, I only exist as much as people clap, if you see what I mean. It's, <laughs> it's kind of, uh, and, and that's a very important part of it. Um, although I'm at my happiest in many ways when I'm absolutely on my own sitting here, writing the music, creating the ideas and imagining what they could be capable of. So I've just had yeah. to clap myself. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Thank you so much. Uh, look, I'm really interested also, Clive, in where you see progressive music, the progressive music scene or, you know, or the rock music scene generally heading in the future given you know you've been heavily involved for, for for many years as part of it what do you see the next trends being what's around the corner um i don't really know i mean history in general goes in circles and i think music sort of does a certain amount i mean let's face it the biggest sort of rising uh solid thing that you could buy is vinyl isn't it you would have thought that a few years ago mm -hmm. uh, and i think that uh with with musical styles they go in circles as well i mean one of the one of the things i've always found quite uh, reassuring about progressive rock is although it is sort of an underground it's a consistent thing and it has its little moments where it kind of rises and puts its head above the parapet but it's a fairly consistent thing i think rock music in general will continue to be what you think it is i mean technology will develop and therefore i suppose certain sort of elements of the sound in terms of production and recording will improve or change or what have you um but i you know i i think the basic spirit of what rock music is uh, whether it's progressive rock or heavy rock or any other kind of rock will just continue down its own thing i think if if you were to arrive 100 years from now it may well be there'll still be an underground progressive rock mm -hmm. and there'll, there'll be a there'll be a heavy metal area and this that and the other and there'll be probably some new uh sort of genres as well but i think these these other ones will will just continue to sort of exist and every now and again they'll have their moment again there'll be a everyone will think it's all fresh and new but in fact all they're doing is listening to something that first turned up like 50 years earlier yeah, mm. yeah. so i think I, I it goes in circles Indeed. just like pandemics Spanish flu you got your plague and if you spend a little time looking at history you'll realize how these things kind of develop that the, the second wave and sometimes the third wave it always amazes me why people are thinking that this is such a mystery now mm. uh, with this thing that sort of hit us uh, if you actually look back it, 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 it'll take it'll the graph will be the same and I think people need to just uh, take a moment take a moment to yes. think and, but there you go. <laughs> and sp speaking of true mysteries and, and that being of songwriting, I want to cover sort of your approach to composition both from uh, the band viewpoint and then the musical viewpoint. But starting off with the band viewpoint, you're obviously a very prolific songwriter and lyricist. What, what's your standard sort of, or if there is a standard process, do you tend to approach it the, a similar way each time or it varies? Um. I've got sort of two basic ways of writing. One is doing it myself. The other is working with other people. Um, so obviously, well, first of all, I should make it clear in Pendragon, I'm not a writer. That's Nick Barrett's yeah. domain. And I'm very much a performer. So my job is as a keyboard player, uh, you know, to, to that band. But if we go to Arena and all the other projects that I'm involved with, then, you know, my main uh, part in that is, is as a writer. Um, with Arena, what tends to happen is uh, various people in combination usually will, will come up with little bits. And what we do is we collect just little ideas. It could just be a four-bar riff. It could be a tiny little bit of, of, of something. I don't know. Um, and I collect them all into a big folder or a little folder, depending on how much they want to offer. And then at some point <clears throat> when it's time, I sit in this room lock myself away for four or five days or sometimes a few weeks and basically put the album together. <clears throat> and uh, that way, uh, it's been a fairly consistent process. And, the, and, and my sort of, the, although I have a big influence in terms of, because I write a lot of the music, uh, it's got to make Mick happy as well. So there's kind of a filter that the thing goes through. 
So it's not just me saying, right, there it is, there you go, lads, there's your yeah. album. No, it has to have, you know, everyone has to be happy with it. So that's the filter, as opposed to if I'm writing on my own, then the only judge is me. Mm. Um, and uh, I'll be honest, I'm happiest when I'm writing on my own, and not because I have any problem with working with other people, it's just because I don't have to stop. If, if you work with other people, then you have to wait for a moment. Okay, yeah. guys, you have this or what do you think or maybe you don't like this and uh, although i have to say in arena when we've done this uh there's rarely been a point where we've disagreed so sometimes i'll play some material like i've written a load of bits and pieces and i'll play <clears throat> i'll play the bits and pieces to, to mick and he'll sort of no, i'm not really sure about that and I, I and i'll sort of think well actually no he's probably right that, that doesn't sound quite right for us or whatever and I, there's never been any big disagreements it's just that 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 kind of it's like wearing the right hat. Put on the arena hat, then then that's what you're writing. Uh, with the other stuff, uh, it's still kind of hats. I mean, there's a big difference to what I might write for, uh, like the musicals, as opposed to working on sort of some of the other stuff that I've done. So I, I think it's kind of visualizing what the end project's supposed to be in a way, what, what it is you're trying to do. And the other thing I tend to, what inspires me to work is uh, 90, 99% of what I do is inspired from a visual element or, or, or a kind of very least a conceptual element. I don't tend to write abstract music. Uh, there's only about, in, in all of the stuff I've written, there's about two, it's two pieces that I would say, well, yeah, okay, fair enough, they're just music. But most things always, for me, begin with a visual element, whether it's a concept, like a story, uh, which often happens with arena, or whether it's a story and, and uh, in a musical. I mean, if, if someone says, okay, give me the very first piece of music that's going to happen in this musical, I got nothing until they tell me it's 1874 in London and it's mm -hmm. foggy and the lights are down and this, that and the other, and all of a sudden then I can start to feel, or if I was stuck in a, some kind of ice cave, then I'd be using a lot of metallic sound. You've got to have a kind of a, well, for me, I have to have a visual stimulus to, to kind of make me right, and that's that works really well. And, that, and so is that part of the reason you've become so passionate about musical theatre, because by its very nature is both a visual and musical um, thing? Uh, maybe, yes. I mean, as a child... <laughs> I used to, you know, um, I was an only child, so I had a lot of time to, to spare. And I used to sit and go through my sort of parents' records. And it, it so happened that they had a lot of musicals uh, in, in those albums. And those are the ones that I gravitated to. And I didn't even know what they were about. So I might put on, uh, I don't know, Sound of Music. And, and I, it wasn't that I really knew what the Sound of Music was, but I listened to the songs and imagined what was going on. And that was a great sort of flight of imagination for me. And I... Uh, and I've always and I've loved opera as well. I love the theatre as a sort of place of bringing anything. Anything's possible, and I and I, that that's why I love films. I love novels. I love I love fantasy, and I don't mean as in fantasy novels. I mean fantasy as in the ability to kind of imagine all these possibilities. And uh, to me, uh, music is a part of that. Uh, and and uh, but I have but I have to kind of in some ways I have to have all of it to be able to do it. It makes it much more fun i suppose yeah and just briefly do you want to talk about your you've essentially set up your own uh, projects not being fair to encapsulate it but talk, talk about what you're doing with theater at the moment uh well as far as the musicals concerned um some years ago we started actually because initially when i when i wrote the first one which was she which is based on a Ryder haggard um sort of victorian adventure novel it was all it was it wasn't it wasn't far from being just a concept album in my head it was a you know i wanted to write a sort of a rock musical but uh, you know that that was where we were but then we had an opportunity to sort of perform it on stage and then later on we had a, an opportunity that was a concert version but then later on uh, the, the opportunity came up that i started actually being able to do theater versions of these things and that was where I wanted it to be. And in my mind, the whole kind of world of the musicals that I work in is very different attitude and a different approach to, to making an album with Arena. So for when we make an Arena album, it's all about the CD, the latest album, uh, promoting the album, going out on tour, playing it, 
job done how many cds have we sold sort of thing whereas with the musicals it's it's almost the other way around it's all about the show allowing that show to have some kind of organic development so in other words each time we performed alchemy which is the second one i wrote it's been different we've added things and changed the way we've approached it and everything and to me the cd sales are not important uh, they are they are really just part of the merchandising that goes with the actual show the thing that i my my, my kind of object for this my, my my ambition is for these musicals to exist preferably without me that that's always been my kind of big aim. hey you're performing you know someone's performing alchemy in scotland and i'm not even part of it i'll come up and see it i'd love to but and and, and I'm, I'm getting close i mean I, you know there's uh, this norwegian group of people now performing uh they performed alchemy and they are planning to perform king's ransom which is the third Musical Alchemy and King's Ransom are, are interconnected. They're part of the same right. set of uh, things. That she was a separate thing, uh, and they're performing. Well, they were going to perform it this year, but pandemic got in the way. They were going to perform it in February, but the pandemic's threatening to get in the way. So I think it's been delayed another year. But I'm still in it. Uh, they, they're kind of bringing me over to to be in it. But I'm getting closer to that point where I will just be able to sit in the audience. So, you know, that'd be great. And speaking of sitting in the audience, um, many years ago I directed a drama and the condition of the, the uh, writer of that drama was that on any given night, four tickets had to be made available so that the writer could turn up. So just make sure you write that into every single time you license it, Clive. That's a good thing. And I actually, having said that, I have actually sat in a few performances of, of, the, of these shows uh, for, I'm just trying to remember how I ended up not performing in them, but I, I mean, I was part of the production and I was probably financing it. So I still wasn't free of it, but I have sat and I've <laughs> got to say, um, having said that I'd love to sit in the audience, I suppose it's because it was my production. It was my money on the line, but it was, it was scary as hell sitting in that audience <laughs> and watching that show. Cause I felt even more helpless than if I was on stage. So, and there was one point cause we use, uh, uh, there's a little a Victorian theatre in Cheltenham, which we've used, called the Playhouse. It's a beautiful little theatre and perfect for the kind of things we want to do. But you can't exactly fit an orchestra in there. We have occasionally kind of put a band together, but it's very hard to control the volume. So a lot of the time we use backing tracks. And there was one performance, and I was in the audience, so for whatever reason I wasn't doing the stage version. Um, and uh, basically they were singing one of these songs, and it's like a multi-voice song, and uh, it's a sort of storm sequence in, in, in she. And and the backing track just disappeared. Something had gone wrong. And they're mm. sitting, and they're, they're, they're on the stage. The lights are all flashing for the storm, singing this thing, and the, and the backing track stopped. And I just wanted to disappear into my chair. Because, like, I, it felt like everyone in the room, and it was sold out, so it felt like everyone in the room was looking at me. Of course, they weren't, no. but it felt like... And the, but the wonderful thing was, and this is, it again, because I was powerless, but on stage, they kept singing. They just kept singing and going round this kind of chorus thing that they were singing. And somehow the sound engineer managed to kind of get it back, get going again. And the music just came in underneath them and they finished the song. And I think, I would say at least half the audience had no idea there was anything actually wrong. They thought it was some kind of a cappella moment before the music came crashing back in for the big finale. And I just, but the second half, that was the first half of the show. The second half, I hid up in one of the boxes where just the technicians were. I couldn't sit in the audience anymore. It was just too, too uh, scary. <laughs> Clive, tell us a bit about your upcoming Song of the Wildlands release. Ah, the Viking album, as I call it. Yes, well, that's something that has got me excited. It, it was... Um, it came out, well, basically, I, I, I'm going to be writing a third alchemy musical. I call them alchemy. There's alchemy, there's King's Ransom, and then there'll be a third one. Mm -hmm. And we did a show last year, and I, it was kind of like a, a best of the musicals, as it best of my musicals, bits and pieces put into like a new story. But I wanted to write one song from that would be in the third musical, just as a kind of little preview. Mm -hmm. And in the story of this, this third musical, I know that it's going to end up, well, it's going into Norway uh, for, for various reasons, which I won't bore you with now. Um, and 
therefore I thought, right, what I could do is give it more of a sort of Scandinavian approach. And then I started thinking Vikings and such like. So I, I, I sort of started listening to that kind of thing, folk Vikings, sort of Scandinavian folk music, stuff that kind of called itself Viking music. Of course, we don't know what Viking music actually sounded like, mm -hmm. but it's kind of interpretations. And I thought, well, that's great. I can do my own interpretations. So I put a song together uh, called Macaria, which which I really loved doing, and I loved the sound of it. And that really kind of got me in, got me hooked on this sort of what I'll call the Viking sound, if you like. Mm -hmm. um, and and then I thought, wow, wouldn't it be interesting to kind of go a bit further, learn more about these instruments like the nickel harp and all these various things, and actually just do an album. So then I thought, started thinking about this. And I thought, oh, I'd really love to do that. And then I was a bit worried because nowadays in, in today's rather sanitized society, if I was to do a Viking story, I would probably be accused of cultural appropriation yeah. or something. Yeah. So I thought about it longer and I realized that, of course, one thing at my fingertips exists is called Beowulf. It's the, it's the story of yeah. Beowulf and it's mm -hmm. English poem about a viking story so i thought well i can't you know that that sounds like the answer so I, I i went and i read the 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 whole beowulf thing which takes about three or four hours so it's a big poem mm. it's a saga uh not not just the bit that you hear in grendel um and um i just thought oh, this is perfect so uh i um thought well i'll do so i'll do the album so i've basically written an album based on the the beowulf saga uh, including, of course, his battle with Grendel and his battle with Grendel's mother and a battle with a dragon, lots of battles. Uh, <laughs> and I brought in uh, a lot of what I'm calling the Viking instruments. That's that's a very mis misguiding title for them, but, you know, it's, it's to kind of give it that flavour. So like the nickel heart, which is this very old style, almost like a violin, but it's got buttons as well. And I thought, I, I searched all over Scandinavia to find a, a player and eventually I found this girl called Vicky and she lives in Essex. So she's only a few miles away from here. And luckily over during the, the pandemic, over the lockdown, um, she, she had her own recording equipment. So we were able to kind of get all that stuff recorded in, despite the lockdown. And the other thing I did, I put out the word on Facebook and I said, look, does anyone want to sing? Because this album is very much about the chorus. Imagine it's like a Viking oratorio, if you like, you know. Mm. Uh, it's all about the chorus, and I really wanted to kind of get plenty of voices. And loads of people came back to me, so I put a Facebook group together and called them the Wildland Warriors, and basically uh, there's about 50 of them, and they all started recording. I would send out every week, I'd send out, like, parts and, and you know, little simple mixes so they could hear what the vocal's supposed to do, and they would all start sending them back. So I spent four and a half months editing all these vocals as they were coming in, which was great because it gave me something to do. Mm. It gave them something to do because they were kind of locked down anyway. And I ended up with about 200 voices per song, per, per track that, <clears throat> that has choir, which is fantastic. It sounds very big. So I managed to get that done and various other things. So the album is well on its way. Um, I think we've got bass guitars and a couple more Viking instruments to put in and we're, we're ready to mix it. But it'll be out in March next year is the plan. And we're hoping it'll be in a really nice book format so people can really get to understand the, the story. I even managed to get myself a medieval consultant, this guy, uh, one, of, one of the relatively few people who can read and understand Anglo-Saxon. And, and so the chorus are all singing in Anglo-Saxon, not in English, but Anglo-Saxon, which is very specialised. So I managed to get my, my expert to translate the choruses into Anglo-Saxon and then to, to do them phonetically so that people like me could could actually sing and read the parts, uh, and uh, that that sounds great. Again, it's a fantastic tapestry because you can't really understand what they're singing, and that will all be in the book and explained and everything. So there's a lot. There'll be a lot of the history elements in there, which I think will be interesting. That's brilliant. so I'm looking forward. To yeah, and I think uh, J.R. Tolkien did a translation of Beowulf, didn't he, in the 1920s or 30s? Yeah. He did. He did, and I've got it over there. Um, yes, he did do. Um, there's the guy called Sean something, oh, again, sorry, my, off the top of my head, I can't remember his name, is the one that's the kind of accepted the standard. One, yeah. yeah, and that's the one I used as my kind of blow-by-blow -blow account, if you like. But, but Tolkien did indeed do uh, a translation, yes. And in fact, can you still see me? We sure have can. You still got, have we you sure still can. got me? Yeah, yeah. Okay, I know it's 
audio, but uh, I managed to. That, that's the front. That's the very first page of Beowulf. Oh, of course, wow. I, I didn't steal it from the museum. This is fake. <laughs> and, but, uh, and just for our for our listeners' sake, it's written in blood. So how impressive it, is that? <laughs> virtually, it looks like it. It's fantastic. Can't understand a single word on it, but uh, that is the very first page. Because when when it was written down. Um, the, the story itself was probably already several hundred years old. We don't know who wrote the story. We don't know who wrote it down. We don't know who created it. It could even be partly true. Uh, I don't, you know, elements of it. Mm. There may have been somebody back there called Beowulf. I don't know. Um, but uh, it's had me fascinated anyway. I love the whole kind of the imagery of it all. And I love the, the feel of it all. And I've become very Viking in attitude nowadays, <laughs> including the beard. That's right. Well, for, for the benefit of our listeners, you can jump onto YouTube and if you type in Clive Nolan Dragonfire or, or something similar, Dragonfire, yes. the uh, the uh, the preview comes up and you can actually see all the uh, the choristers yeah, singing in, in Anglo-Saxon. It is quite impressive. It is. And the sound of all those voices in that, that it's that feeling of you, you don't quite know what they're saying because you don't know what they're saying, but it, it sounds really good. So I'd encourage our listeners to Absolutely. have a chance to check that out. Yeah, yeah really. that's, that's, that's good fun, actually. I've got each one of them to do a little video clip of that little end section of the song. And uh, the director who wants to do the Alchemy movie put it all together into a you know little package, and uh, that was kind of cool. I like that, yeah. Yeah, it's just come up really well. Uh, now, Clive, we ask all our, or just about all of our guests this question, and it is to do with... As a keyboard player, and you, you you gave us one already as a as a uh, as a producer and, and director and creator of, of the She production, but as a keyboard player, what's a memorable train wreck that has happened to you on stage that you've had to negotiate your way through? Oh God, I, plenty. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I suppose one of the, one of my sort of uh, most well one of the ones I remember the most. We uh, was with Pendragon. We are playing in Holland. Uh, in, a, in a venue in Tilburg in Holland. And uh, there was a song, ironically, uh, uh, the song's called Total Recall. Ironic because of what comes next. <laughs> but basically it starts with a kind of, there's a sort of... And it kind of goes off like this, and it's, it goes round, um, uh, like a lovely pianistic thing goes round for about 32 bars. Then it goes round again, and I think there's like a little bit of guitar, and then the next time round it has the vocal in. Um, and uh, I was standing off the side of the stage before we walked on stage, and I made a, a, a and here's, here's a piece of advice I would give my younger self. Don't try and think about the songs in advance. Not when the intro tape's playing and other things are going. So of course I tried to visualize this introduction and I couldn't, I couldn't see it in my head, which of course was a problem. So we went on stage and we started playing the set and I knew it was, I don't know, the third or fourth song. And even between songs, um, when the audience was clapping after another song, I was trying to go, duh, 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 duh. and basically uh, we got to the song and I started, and, and basically it's a very serious moment. It's all very emotional. And the other members of the, Nick and Peter on bass, they, they're standing there over their guitars with their heads down, just, you know, allowing the music to happen, the drummer and uh, same thing. And I started playing and I thought, I have not got a clue what happened <laughs> after the first, first bit. And all I knew was somehow after this business, it goes all sorts of places. I knew it had to finish on an A chord. So I basically started playing and then I just went to, and I just went off in a tangent and I just started playing anything I could do to, to just keep <laughs> playing. And I just saw their two heads gradually look up at me in total horror as they realized that I didn't know what on earth I was doing. And then uh, I kind of got to the bit and I sort of went, and I sort of like, here we go. And they'll know to come back in and, and, and then we start again, and the whole thing happened again. I started the first few bars, Nick started the guitar part, I haven't got a clue. So by the time we got to the third verse, Nick knew perfectly well I didn't have a clue what I was doing, but he still had to sing the verse. And we made it into the next part of the song, which, which I did know. Um, but the funny thing was the lighting engineer very early on realized it was all going horribly wrong, and he was a bit of a sadist, so he had this uh, follow spot, so he whacked it onto me. <laughs> 
And it felt, uh, I mean, to be fair, this whole experience probably was only about a minute long, um, but it felt like an absolute age. And I have no idea if anyone had videoed it or anything. I've never seen it, fortunately, but that I remember very clearly. Everything went in slow motion. And, you know, the funny thing is, we didn't play that song again for the tour. <laughs> we dropped it. We dropped it from the set because I was too paranoid about it. We have played it since, so. I, I hasten to say. That is superb. <laughs> that, that's, that's a very good train wreck. That is an extremely good one. Brilliant that's definitely story. in our top five, that one. That's excellent. Um, so, Clive, before we get on to the harrowing last question, uh, what's um, coming up for you in the next year? It's, uh, I assume you've got some rescheduled touring. Hopefully. Yeah, well, um, this year I think nothing. Uh, well, nothing in terms of touring. I, much that I would love to do. Something I think that's not going to happen. But next year, yes, the, the the rest of the Pendragon tour has been lifted out of where it should have been, and we've put that at the moment. That's sitting in April. It's actually been it's actually longer than what was left. It's kind of like another tour. But I think we're all a little bit nervous as to whether even April will be possible because it's not just a question mm. of whether the venues will open. It's a question of whether the punters will come back. That's right. It's going to take a while before people are prepared to sort of mix again. So um, it's in April, and I hope it happens, but who knows. We did have uh, the rescheduling of King's Ransom in Norway in February. They've now taken that out because we're pretty sure that won't happen, and that's been put forward like another year. Mm. And then in October next year, the October tour from this year with Arena has been delayed till October next year. And again, well, we're sort of hoping that one would happen. It's, yeah. There's a little bit later in the year. There's a better chance, perhaps. So quite a lot of touring. There's and there's a few sort of festivals and odds and sods that are due to happen during the year, and we'll just I think we're just going to have to see. I mean, the reality is, and unless they can come up with some fantastic vaccine, I, I suspect that next year is going to be a bit messy as well. Yes, yeah, agreed. And uh, speaking of messy, let's talk about narrowing down five albums that um, you couldn't live without, Clive. I did give you a heads up, so but I still sympathise. Yeah, you, you did, although rather like the uh, uh, Total Recall song, I decided not to try and think too much about it <laughs> at the beginning. Um, well, okay, I, I, I have to say that the difficulty for me is I'm very much guided by mood. In other words, people often say, what's your favourite album? Well, I think, well, what's my favourite album today? Yeah. Because it might well be different. But I, I'm going to try and come up with a couple of things that are just influential to me. Right. Uh, because I think those are the ones that would have the most impact uh, and on the things I perhaps would want to listen to. And I, I've already mentioned one, which is King Arthur. Yep. Um, because that was one of my big, big discoveries uh, as 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 a kid at, at school, and following that, another one I mentioned would be Seconds Out because that was the mm. thing that actually has put me on this career. That's right. uh, that was the thing that made me sort of make that decision. Um, I want to include something classical. So actually, it, I can't say that it's an album in as much as it's you know Beethoven brought out this latest album or something <laughs> like that. But um, but I think it was a very influential album for me. Um, uh, and uh, despite the fact that Beethoven is probably the, the, my greatest idol in terms of comp composers, this is actually Berlioz's Symphonie Fantastique. Um, and in many ways, I've always argued this is perhaps one of the very first progressive rock albums. Mm -hmm. If you take the time to check it out properly, it's a concept album, if you like. It tells a story. Uh, it follows themes. It has these little motifs that reappear. It's got all the right elements. And, I, and, and to me, it was just, again, when I, when I first discovered it as a kid and, 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 and discovered the flights of fancy that somebody could go on to create the visual aspect. Because, again, this, to me, this is a very visual symphony. Mm. Um, so uh, I think that that's kind of, um, yeah, an important one for me. Right. Um, on a, a very different uh, area and, and perhaps... A little controversial. Um, uh, the I, I would actually elect to get the very uh, one of these compilations. Album. I'm afraid that's cheating slightly, but nevertheless, I would really need to have the best of Monty Python. No, no. Um, because I For absolutely sure. love them, uh, and anyone who knows my Facebook sites, particularly during the lockdown, will know that I I've played a couple of the songs um, as as sort of things to do. Basically, uh, I find them. Obviously, they're amusing, but I, I, they cheer me up sometimes. They just, uh, you know, there's just a silliness yeah. about them. 
thing and, and a catchiness about the whole thing. Um, and then I suppose because of my love of musicals, I would just have to have my favourite musical, which is Phantom of the Opera. Nice. So, yeah. uh, I mean, I've got to be honest, I could probably get, keep on listing albums, but you've got to have five. That's right. Those five, I think, though, yeah, I, actually, I'm, I'm pleased with that set of five. I'd be very happy to have those, yeah. And um, I'm going to do something we've never done on this podcast, which is adding Desert Island books. So, for, again, for the sake of our listeners, because we've been able to watch Clive, he's got this brilliant T-shirt with the Overlook on it, which is obviously the hotel from Stephen King's The Shining. Clive, your top, your top five Stephen King books. Crikey. Um, well, if we're talking Stephen King, as opposed to This Is Not the Zombie Apocalypse by Clive Nolan, which is <laughs> just sort of doing a bit well, of no, we'll, we'll link to that in the show notes for sure. Um, uh, yeah, let me think. Okay, well, Salem's Lot, because that was my discovery of, of uh, King. Um, the Shining, because let's be honest, mm. it's an absolute classic. Jeez. But also, uh, Dr... Uh, death, I think it's called, isn't it? Doctor no, no, Sleep. Doctor, yeah, Doctor Sleep. Sleep. Doctor yeah. Sleep. Sorry. Um, I really, really love that book. That that was one that kind of took me by surprise uh, because I thought, how do you do a sequel to The Shining? And in many ways, although it is a sequel to The Shining, it seems to have very little to do with it. Mm. But apart from obviously the main character, but I really loved the sort of atmosphere in that book. I, I thought that was uh, very interesting. Um, now, the trouble I'm going to have now is, is remembering the title. Um, there's another book. There were three of them. Uh, I think Umbrella's in the title somewhere, but it's a guy. And in fact, to start with, it doesn't. It, it's basically a crime novel. Oh. And the guy's an ex-cop. And I think it's called the Something Umbrella. The uh, so the, uh, you're talking about the Mister Mercedes um, and the yes. other two. Yeah, yes. yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, basically, I I thought I know there were three books, and I'm sort of counting them at the moment as one. But what was so fantastic? And again, this was my thing. I was uh, I was thinking about great about Stephen King. Is you know he, he doesn't he's not in a horror uh, he's not in a hurry to get into the horror necessarily. No. He wants you to invest in the characters. And this is a set of three books. And in fact, the only supernatural element in the first book is probably in the last page. Mm. Uh, the whole thing is basically a crime novel. That's right. Uh, which, which does its ins and outs and twists and turns. And it's only right at the very, very end that a whisper of something happens that makes you think, oh, that's interesting. Why? And, the, and then you have to wait till the next book to find out. And, and then the whole thing starts to expand into a much more um, supernatural, yeah. you know, horrific and a concept so despite the fact that's three books like that and the and the final one i'm going to cheat even more because basically the dark tower <laughs> the dark <laughs> yes tower, it is yeah i mean absolutely there's only addictive. seven of them clive <laughs> yeah seven but you know they could all be bound into one special <laughs> left right. bound volume for my desert island library um <laughs> because again you 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 get very attached to the characters you 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 can't help but sort of i don't know uh experience with them as particularly the main guy obviously what what he's going through and 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 that and and of course the whole length of the journey that he has to take to establish something which i'm not going to say but basically it, it leaves you even more kind of mystified in a way yeah. and and uh, yeah, so, but to be absolutely honest, I have absolutely loved pretty much every book that he's yes. done. There's another one called Thinner. Is it called yes. Thinner? Yeah. Uh, which, uh, uh, yeah, again, it's sort of, he, he just captures some really strong ideas. And I for, suppose. for our listeners that uh, haven't read any Stephen King, definitely don't fall for the stereotype that he's just a horror writer, just like no one should fall um, for the stereotype that Clive Nolan's just a prog rocker. And we'd, Absolutely we'd like... right. So I, can, I completely concur. We're and never, we're never just anything. That's right. And and we can't thank you enough for joining us in in all your multiple guises. And it's been absolutely wonderful talking to you. Absolutely. Well, I've I've enjoyed being allowed to talk. You can tell I've been locked down. I just don't stop talking. <laughs> no, you've done <laughs> well. And there we have it. Uh, as always, and I say it all the time, Paul, I enjoyed the hell out of that. 
Yeah, that was great fun. A really, really personable guy and, you know, such an interesting history with, with the, the prog scene. Yeah, absolutely. And um, apologies to our non-Stephen King fan listeners. I just couldn't resist throwing that in because I am a rabid fan and Clive was rocking the T-shirt, so I thought, why the hell not? So, yeah, no, but huge thanks to Clive for taking part. Um, Paul and I quite often talk after shows. Um, Every single one of our guests so far over these 24 episodes have been absolutely brilliant to talk to, lovely people, um, very amenable, flexible, and we thank them all. All right, the Keyboard Chronicles will be back again in a fortnight or so, but um, just a reminder, as always, that you can keep in touch. Uh, One way of doing that is via our website at www.keyboardchronicles.com. We're on Facebook, as always, too, at facebook.com forward slash keyboard chronicles and on Twitter at thekeyboardchr1. If you like good old-fashioned email, then please do drop us a line at editor at keyboardchronicles.com. If you'd like to become an official supporter, we do have a Patreon account, and where for the price of a coffee a month, you can help us go from strength to strength. And a huge thank you to the thousands of people that have signed up for that. Um, Paul, by the way, your jet is arriving, I think, uh, next Monday. So if you oh, can pick that up, good. Please. I'm going to have to take time out from swimming in the money bin to uh, meet it. That's right. That's right. <laughs> so if you want to help, you know, fill up that money bin, um, patreon.com forward slash keyboard chronicles. So uh, a huge thank you again, Paul, for joining me again this episode. Always a pleasure. Thanks again for inviting me. It's been great. And most importantly, thanks to you all out there for listening. And we hope to see you back here next episode.